The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Diplosport podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Greetings, friends, and thank you for downloading the latest edition of the Diplosport podcast. Today's guest is Alexander Wolf, who is most notable probably for being a writer at Sports Illustrated. But uh, back in February, I had the opportunity to sit down and record this conversation in Toronto around the NBA All-Star Game right after he released his latest book, which is entitled The Audacity of Hoop. And as you can imagine, it documents the relationship between basketball and the life and times of Barack Obama as he rose from playing at Punahou High School through becoming a community organizer to eventually becoming the leader of the free world. I thought this was definitely a conversation worth sitting on until now, right when we're about to kick off the NBA season and ahead of the presidential elections. Uh, regardless of what you think of President Obama, I think that he is unequivocally the most sports-friendly, sports-savvy man uh, to ever hold the position of President of the United States. And he has certainly championed a lot of the aspects of sports diplomacy that we talk about here on the podcast. Alex is also fascinating because of another book he wrote, which I loved, called Big Game, Small World, where he followed hoops around the planet to some really interesting corners and just documenting the role of the game in either bringing people together in some places or tearing people apart in others like the Balkans. And that's certainly worth checking out also. I don't know if it's still in publication, but I will also put a link to that in the show notes too. I've talked a lot so far, so without further ado, I'll turn things over to my conversation with my good friend, Alex Wolf. When did you know you wanted to be a writer or, or a reporter? How, how would you describe yourself? Well, I, I, I guess... I was a consumer of media, um, ran out to the stoop to pick up the paper before my parents did as a kid growing up. And Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, but from the time we were about two till about age 12, grew up in Princeton. And um, I always tell aspiring writers today, I said, if you want to write, read, you know, figure out what you like to read by reading, and then maybe that will inform your voice, it will help boost your voice and help sharpen your voice. We all have a voice that's natural within us, but there's nothing wrong with reading widely and then seeing what works and then borrowing. Um, and so I did that. I was a consumer of media, um, loved reading Sports Illustrated as a kid, looked forward to Fridays when the magazine would usually come. And So your family subscribed to SI. Well, my parents weren't really into sports. Um, my dad was a German immigrant, and my mom was a pianist, so they they never really bought into me doing sports writing. They thought I should write for National Geographic, and ultimately they came around because I folded a lot of National Geographic-type writing into my own writing. So um, in the end, they sort of nodded, yeah, I wasn't a complete waste. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I... I consumed it, and I knew from reading the New York Times in the mornings and Sports Illustrated once a week that that the world was a, a big place and that sport had a subservient place in that, but it, it kind of weltered out and touched on all these other things. And um, by the time I hit college, I knew I wasn't going to be an athlete at that level. 
um, as much as I loved basketball, I played in high school, played pickup ball. And um, so I got in with student journalism in college. You went to Princeton. I went to Princeton, and Princeton being right smack between New York and Philly, it was really ideal. Of course, I didn't make that choice knowing this, but in addition to campus publications, because of that location between these two big cities with Newark and Trenton and New Brunswick nearby, speakers coming through, um, campus politics, all sorts of stuff would happen, and newspapers and wire services would want coverage. So there were about a dozen of us who would do that, who would do real journalism, and we get to see the result in the paper the next day. So it was almost, it was getting professionally edited. So I learned a whole lot in three years of doing that. And why why did you choose to stay local and go to Princeton? Well, we'd actually moved. When I was 12, we moved to upstate New York, to Rochester, New York. So in a way, it was choosing to kind of go back home. You know, a a little 18-year-old boy realizing that Oh yeah, this is where many formative experiences had had happened. That TV show, The Wonder Years, kind of described my own childhood. I was a Jets fan, just like uh, Fred Savage was. Kevin Arnold in that in that TV show. Your girlfriend's name was Winnie Cooper. Yeah, didn't quite get that good, but um, but yeah. So I, I I went back, and as an eight year old growing up in Princeton, Bill Bradley had been all the rage, and I was a little too young to actually go to the games, but I. I did take note that I had these parents who didn't care about sports, but they had noticed Bill Bradley, and they approved of Bill Bradley. So the idea of being a good student and being passionate about basketball, I got these subtle signals that, hey, that's okay. It's incredible that you say that. And this is something that the more folks that I talk to, beginning with Condi Rice even talks about this, uh, is the aspirational aspect of sport. It's something that Johan Olaf Koss talked about with Eric Hayden, where you have these heroes that you set up that make make you want to be a better person because of their performance. And you talk about Bill Bradley. When I, I grew up in a town <laughs> called Oceanside on Long Island, and there was a guy named Jay Fiedler uh, who was a three-sports star athlete at the local high school, and he ended up going to Dartmouth, and, and he ended up becoming a pro quarterback in the NFL, that my parents had a similar kind of thing where they said, that's the kind of young man that you want to grow up in. Yeah, isn't, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and the fact that Bill Bradley was profiled in The New Yorker by John McPhee. Now, John McPhee was a name my parents kindled to, and the fact that McPhee would waste his time on Bill Bradley meant that Bill Bradley couldn't have been completely wasting his life by running around in short pants. Um, so all that stuff kind of intersected. And and then when I was at Princeton myself as an undergrad doing that student journalism, still playing ball recreationally, and as I was leaving school, my first book was published. I did it with a buddy called the In Your Face Basketball Book, which was basically about the pickup game that I loved so much. And partly a result of what I had done, I was hired by SI as a fact checker, that entry-level position. And it was incumbent on me to hustle up writing opportunities, but I, I did, and uh, been there now 36 years. So you ended up at SI right out of Princeton. I did. I started September 1980 at the magazine, and at that time, we were just beginning that kind of 80s boom where the magazine was flush with ads, and um, they wanted coverage of lots of college, lots of pro basketball, and that was my thing. So very quickly, I started to get assignments. But the other thing that was happening in the 80s was you were starting to see the international inflection to basketball. 
you know, the Detlef Shrimps would come and play their college ball in the States. And Georgi Glutchkov of Bulgaria was the first European, first international player to actually be an NBA player. Didn't make any kind of a lasting impact, but that started what quickly through the 80s and obviously with the Dream Team in 1992, there was this whole parallel beat that was materializing. If you're the basketball writer, you're covering the colleges, you know, by the time the college season's over, the NBA playoffs are starting up. So I did a little of both. And and then with every Olympics or a Pan Am Games or a, a Drajan Petrovic or a Tony Kukoc suddenly comes into the league, there was need for real international coverage. Do you think that being the child, uh, a first-generation American, uh, was a formative part of your journalistic career? Yes, without question. I mean, I, I studied French in high school and had all these relatives who spoke German. I left college for a year. Um, after my sophomore year, I stopped out for a year and played basketball in Switzerland for a club team. Um, I'd been a decent high school player, which made me more than adequate for <laughs> third division ball in Switzerland in those days. Um, and during that period, I taught myself enough German. So when I went back to college for my junior and senior years, I could take a few more courses. So here I had a couple of languages. I was comfortable overseas um, I'd grown up in a household where, you know, it was important what went on outside the borders of the U.S. And so my natural instincts were not to be limited, if I were a sports writer, not, not to be limited by the 94 feet of, of the court. Mm -hmm. oh, that's a very nice way of putting it. Uh, I really enjoyed your book, uh, Big Game, Small World. And how many countries did you visit when you were putting that together? Oh, thanks, Morgan. No, it was um, – there must have been about 12 or 13 countries. And at least. Yeah. You were all over the place. Yeah, the and then interspersed with a handful of stops in the States too because I was trying to tell a, a kind of unified story about the game. Um, but yeah, between the Philippines and Lithuania, which are two countries where basketball actually is the most popular sport. Um, soccer really isn't part of the conversation um, to a place like Bhutan, where the king of Bhutan was having NBA videotapes sent by diplomatic pouch from his United Nations mission um, to keep up with his his beloved basketball. It, it was the perfect time to do the book because Jordan had just retired. Mm. And that whole backwash from the 92 Dream Team had, had taken, had had its effect so I was seeing kind of the, the flowering of all that. And a country like Ireland, for instance, where you wouldn't even think that basketball would figure. There was this kind of generational thing going on there with the game. Um, the Balkans, the people there were kind of picking up the pieces after their war uh, it, through the 90s. Here I was working on the book right in the early 2000s and um, taking stock of all that. I mean, there were so many... Entry points. Um, you know, the book's maybe a little out of date now. Um, part of me wonders if there isn't a sequel in it. Um, there were places I didn't go. I didn't go to Australia, which is now a there, I think there are seven Aussies in the league right now. Yeah, and, and making a real impact. And I've since had a chance to go there. And, and the story of Patty Mills of the Spurs, which is such a fascinating one I was able to do for the magazine. And I remember telling my wife, wow, this... I'm working on a story right now that is like a chapter from Big Game, Small World. And so that 
continues to happen. Um, and I, I'm grateful to my employer for letting me kind of get up to speed uh, in terms of basketball internationally. Um, but now it isn't something that I kind of discovered. It's something that the, the whole world takes for granted. What is it about sport? And then I, I would consider you an expert on basketball. What is it about a game that can transcend international boundaries and bring people together? Well, first of all, let me underscore the truth of the premise of your question, which is it does. I mean, basketball has proved to be amazingly durable. I mean, when the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was mistakenly targeted by U.S. bombs, um, it was basketball that kind of helped repair that relationship, that thing that China and the U.S. had in common. I, I think the key in terms of basketball was that within a few years after its invention, it was taken overseas because it was invented at a training school for missionaries. By a Canadian. By a Canadian. And along with their Bibles, these missionaries went to the far corners of the earth with this new game, easily adaptable, and it's installed. And so, say in China, um, you get the cultural revolution that comes along and you have all these things that are Western um, are frowned upon, and basketball is given a pass. I mean, the music of Beethoven is banned, but basketball is given a pass because it's taken root and it's just something that people have accepted. So years later, when Yao Ming starts, you know, makes his entrance into the league, there's this commonality. And, and even while the U.S. and China go through rough patches in their relationship, um, Americans can always reassure themselves that there are more NBA fans in China than there are in the U.S., it's interesting that you bring up the missionary angle. I know my experience as a diplomat, you go to the far ends of the earth, there's the, the virtually a U.S. diplomatic presence every every country on the planet except maybe two or three. And then there are missionaries there wherever you go. I mean, it, heck, there are even missionaries in North Korea, uh, Iran, brave people. The... One common thread that I found in Big Game Small World was spirituality. It came up a lot in the book, whether it was there was a chapter, maybe it was a Buddhist uh, monk that you were tracking down that carried a basketball net. Yeah. <laughs> that maybe that didn't that, that story didn't work out the way you thought it would. Um, the the nun that was a star of Villanova before she be, became cloistered, uh, e even. Uh, I mentioned a circumcision with the guys in in Israel, uh, and then of course the Native American aspect and, and spirituality. Is basketball a religion? Is that why it's so successful? Well, there there is that whole Mayan uh, sport, sure. as it were, where as part of a ritual and sacrifice that human heads were put through these stone rings, that seems to be. It's certainly not what influenced James Naismith, the inventor of the game, but it it suggests to me that there is a kind of common human desire to see if you can take a, a, some sort of object and put it through a receptacle. So I wonder if the if maybe that is the foundation of something spiritual. I, I do know from my own experience with the game that the repetition of shooting hoops has a kind of calming influence on on me anyway it did um that space that you have to occupy to 
make a free throw under certain conditions and being in the zone has a kind of spiritual connotation. Sure. I mean, I do, I do think that people who are devoted to a task that requires um, repetition and requires cooperation and all these things that uh, basketball invites, I do think they're more likely to submit themselves to a kind of spiritual regimen. Um, I'm not saying that basketball is a, a substitute for a whole theism, but I, I do think we are wired as as human beings in a certain way to go deep. Um, and basketball, for whatever reason, seems to be a sport. People talk about basketball Jones. You know, they don't talk about football Jones or, or baseball Jones. It's it it's a very engrossing pastime um that i think does have these resonances of of devotion and certainly in your career covering basketball internationally you've come across state department personnel uh, i i know there was a mention of an fso in angola that you became buddies with during a pretty tough time in angolan history uh, and of course you talked about uh going to the un dinners at the Waldorf Astoria uh, hosted by Ambassador Holbrook. And maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience coming across some of my State Department colleagues while you've been out in the field. Yeah, I, I think people who represent the U.S. abroad find sports to be that safe ground. It, it, it really is a place where differences, at least temporarily, can fall away. Um, you know, ping pong diplomacy to Dennis Rodman's freelance ding dong diplomacy. I mean, you there there is this kind of amazing thing about sport and for a foreign service officer being able to kind of I don't know, embrace a kind of a new protocol. Um something that that isn't fraught necessarily. I mean, I was struck particularly in Ireland that basketball re- represented generationally a much more inclusive sort of we're part of Europe oh we don't have these rigid things where Gaelic football and hurling are our games and the other games like soccer and rugby are the games of the British garrison and we cannot play them you know there there's basketball has that advantage and you know the 92 dream team I think introduced it as an American or reintroduced it as an American product globally that the smart foreign service officer could jump on. And I think the momentum from that early 90s thing is is with us today. I mean, we've only seen it kind of mature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's the sports diplomacy of the State Department that formally is doing this or whether a Michael Jordan or a Steph Curry becomes the basis of a conversation with either diplomats or citizens of another country, it's safe, it's human, it's resonant, and the NBA is full of sort of emissaries from so many other countries, and so diverse too. Where baseball, you look, it's it's very it's it's diverse, but it's very regional. It's the Dominican, it's Venezuela, it's South Korea, Japan, uh, but but basketball is Africa, Australia, Europe, Latin and South America. You name it, it's everywhere. It, and it wasn't always that way, but now that it has, and the idea that there's somebody from the Republic of Georgia in the league. I mean, I. I've been there to to look at sports, and basketball isn't really part of the equation there. But we've got Jaja Pachulia. I mean, it's that's very striking, and maybe part of it is that 
you do have an advantage in basketball if you're extraordinarily tall and we don't really care where our big men come from. If they're big enough and coordinated enough, they can be effective, but still it, it is striking. And I, I think it gives the league such a leg up on other U S sports leagues in terms of projecting internationally. And you keep going back to the 92 Olympics. That, that was a real pivot point that that was, or a launching pad maybe for basketball taking the next step, right? The 92 Olympics were a case of David Stern and Boros Stankovic, the FIBA president, having a meeting of the minds that, yeah, it may not be all that competitive if the U.S. pros, the Olympians, are playing against all these other teams like Angola that can't physically match them. It would be more of an exhibition than a competition, but that we had to do this and that you know it would take a decade or two uh, before the rest of the world could begin to catch up well, the genius of that gamble that they took wasn't in 92 and what we saw as, as great an exhibition of basketball as that was. The evidence that they made the right decision came in 2000, two Olympics later, when Lithuania came within a three-pointer of eliminating the U.S. in a game. And that is the journey that we traveled much faster than we thought we would. Uh, yeah, and it's great. And uh, the 2008 Olympics, I guess, was a great final when we played Spain. And they, yep. they had the bigs on Spain that matched up really well with us. And, That's right. Uh, 2012, we had a little bit of an easier time, but it still wasn't a walk in the park that 92 was. It wasn't. And, and the U.S. pros in 2012 in London had to really deliver in the final five minutes or so. And, and they won, but... It wasn't wasn't close to a blowout, and you know some of those truisms about basketball have been borne out that a team that has been together and really is has the chemistry mm. is going to be a, a team of random superstars. And the U.S. in order to win a lot of gold medals has had to adopt more of a kind of European or international national team mentality. <laughs> so, in your opinion, what I'm hearing here is that you think there's a ton of value in using sports as a way for the U.S. government even to officially to engage people abroad. This is a great tool that's in a lot of ways able to fly under the radar. It's able to connect with underserved populations. It, it, as a taxpayer and a journalist, is this something that, that you are proud of as an American? Is it something that you would encourage your government to continue supporting? Yeah, I... I've I've seen, even in non-governmental ways, I've seen um, NGOs go out and use sport in just this powerful, powerful way. Like in Northern Ireland, right? Northern Ireland's a great example, and that's almost in, it's not because of any any nonprofits, you know, taking the initiative. It's just the way it is. Um, you know, people find their passions, and if you can somehow align yourself with with the passions, you can you can get people to pay attention. I mean, one of the most powerful NGOs working today is grassroots soccer in in uh, the parts of Africa that have been ravaged by AIDS. Yep. And it's simply a way of delivering the education and kind of creating an atmosphere of, oh, it's cool to be tested and I'm going to be tested. And I'm, you know, they distribute re literally red cards that young women can flash at men who hit on them in in a threatening environment and kind of to defuse a moment that could be fraught with a little bit of light humor and maybe invite 
some of their girlfriends who are there with them in a in a bar or something to say, "Hey, back off! You've just been red carded." I mean, there it's our language, it's our it's our shared culture, and so much more a shared culture now with the way not just the NBA is consumed overseas, but the way Americans are now consuming the Premier League. You know, it's it. it, it there is a generation of people who are passionate about sports who follow the Olympics by following Usain Bolt's Twitter feed. And it doesn't matter that Usain Bolt isn't an American. If you're an American, you feel you know Usain Bolt. And here's a place where we have something in common with people the world over, which I have to believe will help defuse tensions and will help sharpen our knowledge that we have common interests. Usain Bolt's not an American, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, I forgot about this, but you mentioned grassroots soccer in an article you wrote in SI. It it was the the magazine with Brad Pitt on the cover. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, to try to get people to to pick it up, uh, we put Brad Pitt on the cover. But as no, th- Billy Bean, as, as Billy Bean, it was a Moneyball cover. Um, but yeah, the story was called "Sports Saves the World," and it was essentially a survey of this movement of sport for development and peace. And you also interviewed Dr. Johann Olaf Koss. For and Johann Olaf Koss more or less launched it. He wasn't the very first person, but he brought it after the Lillehammer Olympics in his own very sincere, at first somewhat halting way, um, brought enormous attention to the movement and inspired a lot of other people to go into it. And the stories are just incredible that I was able... I mean, the one that I I find so inspiring is this Venezuelan rum producer um, outside Caracas who was finding his business was being besieged by drug gangs and he had been a high-level rugby player, this guy, Alberto Vollmer. And he realized one day, you know, these gangs are just like rugby teams, except their energies are being channeled in the wrong direction. So he created this rugby program and actually went to the drug lords and said, look, if I guarantee you that anybody in your gang, if they do this rugby program, that has all these non-athletic components to it too, that if they stay crime-free and drug-free for for two years, they do everything we ask, that I'd guarantee them a job. And he found all these employers in Greater Caracas who would help out in finding finding work for them. And this unbelievable thing, it's called Project Alcatraz. He basically jujitsus this whole drug gang into into a rugby team. And People in countries, three or four other countries in Latin America want to emulate it because it was so successful. And it's stories like that that are just, to me, show why sports belongs in a separate category as a force for good. And you certainly mentioned this. You mentioned the sports diplomacy aspect very kindly in your latest book, The Audacity of Who. My former boss, uh, Assistant Secretary Evan Ryan, gets a nice mention in there. And you cover the the Obama administration through the spectrum of basketball in in this book, and it's got wonderful photos, behind the scene shots of the president uh, as a young man, all the way through a couple months before the book came out. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how basketball has shaped him as a leader, and uh, and and 
worked its way into his administration? Well, very early in his life, um, when he's 10 years old, he sees his father for the very last time at Christmas. And his father gives him a, a basketball as a gift. And shortly after that, his granddad gets tickets to University of Hawaii Rainbows games, and they're very successful at that time. And five black starters, and they had a bunch of guys make the NFL out of that team, right? Well, actually, it was Obama's high school so, team. When he'll go on to play high yeah. school, and two of the five starters on that team wind up playing in the NFL. Mm-hmm. But the University of Hawaii had um, th- these great teams and a lot of style, um, and it made a big impression on this ten-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And here he is kind of marooned in the islands in Hawaii and not much in the way of African-American role models around. Other than guys on the military bases. Exactly. And so he gravitates toward pickup games and kind of teaches himself the game and starts to work out his racial identity a little bit and then falls in love with the game, but he's very self-taught and doesn't get a whole lot of playing time on this very good high school team. And even in later years, I think Obama has admitted that he probably didn't deserve the playing time. But at the time, he, w- he knows was a little out of joint about it. And I think that's one of the reasons as he, he leaves Hawaii and he seeks his fortune, his education in the States, basketball abides because it's this kind of hole in his life. And continues to play and develops his professional network in Chicago um, through the game, makes friends, even gets vetted by the future first lady. Um, by his future brother-in-law, Craig Robinson, takes him playing to find out whether he has the character as revealed in a pickup game to uh, to marry Craig's sister. So, um, And it worked out. And it worked <laughs> out. And the game is very sincerely a part of him. So the book kind of, it's a little bit of a basketball biography. Then, okay, he uses the game when he's on the stump before the 08 election to introduce himself to voters. And the decision to do the book came after he's elected when I said, okay, is he going to use the game in office? Is he going to use it to govern? And sure enough, he did you know, to, through the State Department with sports diplomacy on the foreign policy front, domestically uh, uses a game to help sell the Affordable Care Act and get the signups that were needed. Um, and all this evidence emerges as these wonderful photos are coming out of the White House from Pete Souza, the official White House photographer of him around the game. So if he had been reelected, which he was in 04, I I vowed to try to put it all together in a book. And um, I think the case can be made that this president has used this sport more than any president has ever used a sport to, to get in office and to exert the power of the office once there. Do you think this is a start of a trend? I do think it will. It would need to be natural. But the larger lesson, I think, is one that presidents are people too, and they're Americans, and they're things that we do. For instance, like filling out a tournament bracket, for which Obama was criticized early in his presidency. And now virtually all the prominent Republicans in Washington are, are either filling out brackets of their own or talking up the hometown team that's in the field. So ways that you can connect with the American people. I think it's just part of what a president needs to do today. Yeah, so we definitely talked about connecting with people internationally. Sports checks that box, and Obama's done it very well domestically. It it does, and a particular sport. I mean, if you know John Kerry got in trouble when he went parasailing <laughs> back in the campaign, <laughs> and uh, so maybe, yeah, it it has to kind of hit that sweet spot and. And if it's sincere and 
mean, I don't think anybody doubted that Richard Nixon was sincere when he called up George Allen with an idea for a play for the Redskins. <laughs> um, maybe George Allen just humored him when he called, but um, Richard Nixon was a huge football fan. Um, well, didn't he decide a college national championship one year? One of the Arkansas, Texas. I can't remember the specifics, but he made a visit, I think, to Austin, Texas, in conjunction with that big game. Um, and I, I don't know the whole story either, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the 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 whole aspect of sports and the presidency is one that um, that deserves serious attention. And and there've been several very good books about about it that I consulted when I was working on this. But again, I think. Yeah, Eisenhower was maybe more identified with golf than even Obama was with basketball. Sure. They had to replace the the floor in the Oval Office because he would walk in his golf spikes. Yeah, the, the divots in the wooden floor. Uh, they had to carpet it over. Um, but golf is it's not nearly as vigorous a sport as basketball is. And Obama was playing at this very high level right up through the middle of his first term. Yeah, what do you guys say? Was he any good on the court? Is he legit? People say he, he can only go to his left. He sets that move up with a little feint to the right. My and, father says that too, but yeah. it's more when he's watching Fox News. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, if you take the, um, if you take that metaphorically, it's almost the perfect, you know, fake right, go left. Um, but, you know, he freely admits that that's because he didn't have a dad around to kind of work on his offhand with him. And um, they, he's a streaky shooter, but the thing that, people mostly mention is that at least lately when he's played, he's tended to play with people who are better than he is. And he seems to have a knack for figuring out where to fit in when you're playing with guys who are better than you are. And that's, that's a little bit presidential. I mean, you're as a president, you surround yourself with people who know more about individual things than you do. And you try to fit in and maybe synthesize and, and that's that seems to be what he is on the court. One of the last things I want to get you out of here on is one of the things that I'm studying this year is whether or not there's a space for a ministry of sport or a department of sport here in the U.S. And I, I'm finding that more and more impractical to create another overwieldy government bureaucracy. But do you think that a president... And it's unfortunate Obama doesn't have enough time to figure this out now. But do you think that in the future, a president having a, a sports czar there at the White House that could be an interagency coordinator, would that be something valuable to, to the taxpayer, to, to the executive branch? Well, I do think sports now poaches into so many different fields. When you mentioned the number of times that religion cropped up in my book about global basketball and I mean, now it's a huge economic driver. Um, when a school like Penn State, their football team is penalized, it has this ripple effect economically. And we've seen in the Obama administration, they at least entertained um, appointing a commission that would look at college sports. So I do think when you have all these fields being touched by one thing, that it makes sense to bring some sort of coordination to it. Um, the idea of having a ministry doesn't sound particularly American. It's, it sounds the kind of thing you would see in, in the developing world, in a country in the developing world, maybe, many of which do have sports ministers. But um, I think a czar or maybe even um, a, maybe with a kind of sunsetted mission of some sort so that 
okay, under this particular administration, the SAR will be tasked with sorting out the antitrust issues and, and drug and, policy drug control or drug policy. Or drug control policy or or prioritize. And I mean certainly college sports seems like it's ripe for, for some being dictated to by Washington. I think most Americans would agree that um the status quo is is either unfair or untenable. So so maybe when you have as you did with Arnie Duncan as Secretary of Education and President Obama, they seem to be very much of a mind that here's a particular direction we should go in addressing college sports. But then perhaps that's very much an education portfolio. But um, it seems to me, to your question, that sports now spills over into so many adjacent things that having one set of eyes that's looking to coordinate would be really helpful. Yeah, I, I was at a conference late last year, 2015, and both Condi Rice and Eric Holder spoke at it, and the question was posed to each of them, and both of them said, I would never work in government again but for that one position if they created a sports are. And it was it was half kidding, but you could tell that both of them would be eager to be considered if, if such a position were created. That speaks really well for um, – because for you know if you can get – Bureaucrats or technocrats who are passionate about what they do, um, then that that's wonderful. And yeah, and I think it speaks. It circles back to what we've talked about earlier um, about just how sports has that ability to to tap into or unleash these these passions and feelings, and because we we mm. care so much about it, and that that people like you know Eric Holder's background, Condi Nice, Condi Rice's background, they're they're diverse, but they share that passion. Um, you know, I, I assume Condi from having been at Stanford and been around a really classy athletic program. And Eric Holder was a, a player, a JV player at Columbia back in the day. Um, yeah, that's that's real passion. I'm guessing that we would have a pretty deep pool of applicants if, if we were to, to post an ad for that position. And it's interesting you bring up college sports here, too. Very rarely in the history of Sports Illustrated do they run a cover with just text on it. And there have been two articles in the last, what, 15 years that you've written that have ended up as as why the University of Miami should drop football and then we are Penn State, right? You, you... Yeah, there was a football on that Penn State oh, cover, God. but yeah, <laughs> but uh yeah. I think we were Penn State was the more um was what people really remembered from the cover. Um yeah, it's funny that I I should be identified with those two stories that have to do with sort of college football in in the gutter. Um because that's not really my my bailiwick. Um but yeah, I I have found myself to my delight, I should tell you professionally, I found myself I'm sort of the guy when there's a scandal or there's some ethical issue. I'm the guy who always has his high horse tethered close at hand. And, and it's, it's not where I want to be necessarily. I'd much rather tell the story of Patty Mills and his fabulously interesting ancestry and what it means to have him playing in the, in the NBA. Um, but yeah, my beat seems to be sports spilling into other things, and some of those things are depressing, and some of those things are uplifting, and as journalists, we just need to go where the news takes us. Yeah, I guess just another example of sports mirroring life. There are ups and downs, and th that's why it's such a great teaching tool. That's right, and, and SI, if I could shout out to my em employer, you know, after 36 years, they deserve a nod. Um, 
we've we've always I think I can talk for my colleagues we've always felt uh, supported and empowered um, told you know we come up with an idea generally the response is when can we have it from editors and and they've been committed to covering these issues and telling these stories and whether it's a historical piece that gets into how the NFL was integrated and then resegregated before it was finally reintegrated in the late 40s uh, historical piece like that or a piece like abusive coaching techniques and how they're no longer working and why we need to change the paradigm to one more positive. They, they're the kinds of stories that they're committed to doing. And, um, you know, I've been very lucky that I have the space and the time and the resources to pursue them. And then a couple of quick questions that I wasn't able to shoehorn in earlier on. Are you fully bi- well, bilingual with German? Did you grow up speaking German at home? No, I, I'm not bilingual. I'm not fluent in German or French. I speak German maybe a little better than I write it because that's how I learned it when I was in Switzerland. And I write French better than I speak it because I took many years in school. But um, but no, I can, you know, when I covered the Tour de France, I'd buy Lake Keep in the morning and could riddle out what was going on. And um, yeah, no, it's it's definitely helped. I mean, I I tell students frequently when I talk to classes about writing and journalism, that it's probably the profession where that liberal arts background will serve you the best. That, you know, you might be using a little meteorology if you're writing about sailing and a little bit of hydrology and uh, botany if you're writing about golf. And, um, you know, if you're at the Olympics, you're pulling out everything from your toolbox. So uh, that's actually what keeps it interesting for me. That, that every story is a slightly different set of stuff. Will you be going to Rio for the games? I will be going to Rio. I've been down there once already, did a one-year-out story on the preparations. Um, I can't remember an Olympics where there's been more really relevant breaking news out of the, the host city um, than this one. There's just, whether it's slashing the budgets or the water quality or the Zika virus, um, even the domestic politics and and Dilma's role in bringing this for the World Cup and now the Olympics down there. Yeah, and when you think back six six and a half years ago when they won the games, how deliriously happy they were! How this was like a a certification event <coughs> of of their status in the world, and how many tough times they've had to go through. But just um, how from having gone down there, how excited they still are mm. about. The, their moment in in the sun and um you know as usual the olympics are certainly for us at si um we're paying as much attention to everything around the sport as the sports themselves and I, i'm a huge fan of sports illustrated as you well know you've signed you signed the miami cover for me and it'll be going up on my wall here pretty shortly uh it's an american institution as far as i'm concerned and i know that at, I went to one of your uh, book signings for the Audacity of Hoop, and Grant Wall was there. And in talking to him, he was talking about how you were such an important influence in his journalistic career, both being Princeton men. And he, he said he would look forward, to, I think for him it was every Thursday, getting Sports Illustrated in the mail and looking forward to reading your articles. Did you have any specific uh, writers that you looked up to when you were coming up? Oh, I I loved reading Frank DeFord. Okay. I loved reading Curry Kirkpatrick. Um, those those were my two favorite. I loved the enthusiasm, the love for what he was writing about that came through Curry stuff. Curry was Bill Simmons before Bill Simmons, <laughs> um, with a little Tom Wolfe thrown in. Yeah. 
and and Frank DeFord remains kind of the for me the beau ideal of of magazine writers um, any subject really not just sports because he when you read a Frank feature story you were reading about Americana you were you were reading about where we were today if it were about a current figure or where we had been if it were about somebody from the past and um that would that was what I cut my teeth on and that Grant would say that he cut as a reader he cut his teeth on reading me and I know others um it's really great to hear that there's there's a little bit of a a through line to to the SI masthead and and regardless of whether the magazine is delivered in 5 to 10 years entirely on tablets um regardless of how many little brand extensions we do I I'd like to think that that SI hallmark of curiosity uh, a global perspective um and a real commitment to quality journalism stylish quality journalism will, will remain and then the last thing we'll finish up on this uh tell me your Holbrook story <laughs> well um i was in angola for big game small world uh with my wife we'd just gotten married and how many people take their yeah, do you, their yeah, bride to, crazy? A, to the middle of an insurgency? <laughs> the State Department uh, doesn't put out the travel alerts for our health. Well, actually, yeah. we do put them out for our health. For your own health and for everybody else's? <laughs> well, I, the first thing we did when we arrived in Luanda was we went went to the embassy to report. To, Good American citizens. Yeah. No, just in case uh, some arrangements had to be made to bring our bodies back. <laughs> and uh, Russell was the name of the guy, wonderful guy who was, who was the... Uh, consular officer who took our information he just offhand said well you're here for the afro basket would you like a political briefing with our political officer and made me feel like eric severide or something and i said sure and and ended up meeting the um, political officer in the embassy in luanda a guy named alex lascaris who a veteran in africa mm-hmm. and uh, we hit it off um full of really interesting insights alex was you know he speaks six or seven languages and and um had a much richer understanding of what was going on in that country. Um, and we kept in touch after afterward. And he ended up working for Ambassador Holbrook at the UN. And when the ambassador wanted to have an evening celebrating international basketball where he invited a lot of NBA players from distant lands, um, Alex made sure that we, Vanessa and I, got invited. And... Um, and there it was in, in Ambassador Holbrook's Waldorf Astoria residence um, with Jadruna Silgauskas in the house and Hakim Olajuwon and Dikembe Mutombo. And it was just a memorable evening. Um, but the most memorable thing was Kofi Annan came toward the end of the evening. Just as we were about to leave, he came in and the elevator opened up to to the Holbrook suite and Kofi Annan steps out. And the first person he sees is my wife and out went the hand for the for the handshake and it it was um yeah it was a, it was a memorable evening but it was also um fixed in my mind just how this was real this was worth his time as the US ambassador to the UN to kind of assemble all these people from you know if the NBA is a i don't know a social club or something that that he wanted a piece of that action. You know, one of the things in working on the Obama book that was interesting to me was somebody asked this question, um, I think it was at the event in New York. Um, you know, is he kind of like a little kid when he's around these great NBA players? And no, it, it's sort of the opposite. It, it's there for once, kind of humbled to be in the presence of 
this guy who has this office and all that it symbolizes. And there was a little bit of that that night. Um, here you had this charismatic man of boundless energy who's so committed to bringing these great international egos together. And he was acknowledging, you know, yes, David Stern was there and, um, but that that these people played a role too. That these 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 international NBA players were kind of on the same footing as any head of state. Well, I can't think of a better place to wrap up. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you so much, Morgan. It's a real pleasure. Take care. For Alexander Wolf, I'm Morgan O'Brien. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of the Diplosport Podcast. I ask that you follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Diplosport. And if you have the chance, go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review if you have a moment. And that'll help us continue to get great guests like Alexander. Alexander.